For November 5th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 540. You're a wizard, Freddie Mercury. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're like, we're like a family. You know, we may go off and do our, our separate solo projects. Uh, there may be a, a Pete cast. You know, uh, as there was recently on the film Venom, uh, and members can get that in the digital library area of overthinking it. But we always come back to this. Uh, God save us, uh, the overthinking it, the overthinking it podcast. We love to talk about the the movies we watch, the TV we love, the music we listen to, and uh, all of that is going to come into play in this episode. I'm Matt Rather. I am here with my bandmates, Pete Fenzel. Hey, Matt. And Mark Lee. I will, I will rock you. <laughs> All right, this week we are uh, back to talking about movies, something we haven't done, uh, we haven't done in a minute. Um, and this is the number one movie in America. And, the and, Nutcracker and, and the Four Realms. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. No, it's Venom. It's week, week 18 of Venom, nerd. <laughs> Just feels like it's 18. We are going to talk about a, a postmodern text of such intertextual density. Uh, that it is like to Infinite Jest of David Foster Wallace, uh, like to Mumbo Jumbo of Ishmael Reed, uh, like to uh, The Crying of Lot 49 or Gravity's Rainbow of, of Thomas Pynchon. We are talking about a, a film so vast in its uh, uh, semiotic... Um, you know, uh, in, in, so fast in its insemination, let us say, uh, that it could not have a single director. No, Brian Singer could not uh, contain, could not finish principal photography on this movie. And it has a second uh, director even. And uh, we are talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a biopic of uh, <laughs> Freddie Mercury. So let's let's start with the question that I think is on all of our minds. Uh, Mark, mm-hmm. is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide. No escape from whatever nonsense this movie was. <laughs> all right, I didn't really enjoy this. And you'll hear more of my complaining about this as we go. But um, you asked me, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? If that is the dichotomy we're going for here, this movie falls has to fall into the fantasy camp for sure. It takes uh, many, many liberties with factual events, the actual things that happened in the journey of Freddie Mercury and the band Queen to the point where like it really, really stretches credulity and then strains uh, that suspension of disbelief. You know, you, you, you we're accustomed to giving a lot of lat- latitude for uh, movies that are based on true events, um, real people, so on and so forth. I mean, like you're, you're telling a story and, and we're comfortable with separating the two of those things. But this really takes things to a really different level. Uh, I'm just going to give one example. For, if you haven't seen the movie, well, spoiler alert, Freddie Mercury gets AIDS and he dies. I know. Shocking. Um, I'm, I hate to break that to you. But um, OK, so in uh, in real life, in this timeline, in this dark timeline, hideous timeline, in which we live, 
Um, the band, you know, they break up, they get back together, they play Live Aid, which I believe is their last live show. Um, and after that happens, Freddie Mercury is diagnosed with AIDS, and then he uh, lives for a few more years, and he dies. Um, in this movie version, the band gets back together after their acrimonious you know, separation. Um, as they're rehearsing for Live Aid, he tells his bandmates that he has AIDS and essentially that he's dying. And they have this heartfelt moment of coming together for this last big show. That did not happen. It absolutely did not happen that way. So later on top of that, another complaint that I have about this movie about how um, uh, the, the the fairly good, the compelling performance of Rami Malik as the lead character is not at all matched by uh, the, the ensemble cast. He delivers this really heartwarming um, speech about how he's dying of AIDS and they're going to give the fans what they want one last time. Uh, you know, like the, let them touch the heavens or something to that effect. It's like it's pretty good stuff. And the drummer of the band, who just like minutes later on screen was just had an acrim- as very acrimonious uh, confrontation with Freddie Mercury, says completely seriously, "You're a legend, Freddie." Uh, at that point, the movie was really uh, had had really gone into uh, another uh, um, unsalvageable place <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, to answer your question, Matt fantasy to the detriment of the movie not to the detriment of the music um the music was great and we'll talk more about that later but yeah that was one of the many complaints i had about this i gather that some of you guys were not quite so bothered with this or at least were able to better reconcile the factual inaccuracies with the enjoyment of the movie so mark i have to correct one of your factual assessments of the movie Uh and this actually goes back to some advice that i gave you uh, at this point only a couple of months ago which watching this movie it hurt my heart to realize that both of you matt and mark had probably not heeded my advice and do you remember what my advice was the biggest biggest piece of advice i've given you in the past six months of podcasting is that you really need to see the movie the Highlander. (laughs) So the movie Bohemian Rhapsody positions the Live Aid as the last concert that Queen performed in together live uh, with with Freddie Mercury coughing into a napkin like, you know, a uh, like an uh, like an opera, like a bohemian opera character. Right. Like like a character from Lobo M. Uh, when, in fact, if you know the song Who Wants to Live Forever, which plays during the montage wherein Freddie Mercury is diagnosed with AIDS, that is the pop single from the movie The Highlander, which came out in 1986, the year after Live Aid. So we know that Live Aid wasn't the last time that Queen performed together because they made a whole album and did a, a tour for the album that they released alongside the release of the movie The Highlander, which includes the song uh, Princes of the Universe and the song who wants to live forever now during that tour they stopped performing Uh, but there's also the whole queen at wembley stadium concert that i think of when i think of queen at wembley stadium which is not the live lead concert but a different concert they did at wembley stadium as part of the magic tour which is not which is after live aid so like the whole end and then they had to stop the magic tour because freddie mercury was diagnosed with AIDS. So like the whole sequel, because you managed to pull the movie, the Highlander out of the historical record, which I blame you guys for, for not keeping up with the canon, uh, <laughs> because they're allowed to do that. The whole sequence of events at the end of Freddie Mercury's life is totally botched at the end of this movie. <laughs> so sorry, maybe I shouldn't be so harsh 
there could be only one after all. And it is a uh, it is a it is a vicious world out there. But, yes, there's a lot of inaccuracy. Another inaccuracy in this movie is it presents Freddie Mercury as some of some sort of savant who has never sang in a rock band before when he joins Queen and as a fan of theirs. Whereas in real life, they went to go see him and sharked him away from a different band. Right. So it's it's not it didn't work out that way at all. It's like the story of the founding of Queen, the story of the breakup of Queen uh, and a lot of the things in between are not really true to actual events, uh, which I, I guess I mean, to go back to what Matt was saying about this being a postmodern movie, I feel like you have a choice, which is to either view this as a fault of the movie or as one of its defining features. And I'll just sort of float that idea out there. And I'm wondering, Matt, what you have to say about it. I mean, uh, I, sort of, it, it has to be one of its defining features, right? I mean, one would think, right? I mean, otherwise, it just is wrong. I, I mean, not not only because that's the stock overthinking it interpretive move that, like, just assume it's intentional. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, also, but then you have to answer, then you have to, to ask, I mean, the question sort of shifts, right? Like, then what what is being accomplished by doing some of the things that that the movie does. I mean, one, one of the things is that it, it's sort of, it's this, this, uh, revisionist, it's this ex post facto read, um, that I think, I think has to do with, uh, the sort of wishes of the surviving band members. I think it has to do with the idea of what a contemporary audience will, um, sort of uh take on and and do uh will accept right especially uh an audience that is going to go see a film about gay icon freddie mercury right there are certain kinds of you know discursive shibboleths that that audience is going to demand um has to do with the commercial dictates of the box office because this movie was a pg-13 movie and so a lot of what made freddie mercury so compelling right is that he was so sexy you know and that that it was he was sort of un- uncontainable you know and that like though it's kind of hinted at it it's actually almost like a, a return to the days of the code right of the the of early hollywood filmmaking where anything anything having to do with with sexy time right like uh and i say sexy time because sasha baron cohen was originally engaged to play freddie mercury in the this particular version of this biopic as it was conceived uh way back in 2013 or something like that um and the the the, i I guess the troubled production history has something to do with that but like he he anything having to do with sexy time has to be sort of sublimated hinted at uh done in done in other ways right like in in classic hollywood musicals the idea is that when two characters dance together that means they've had sex you know and there are the the uh the the corollary or the the equivalent move in this film is i think that like when two men make fleeting eye contact (laughs) right yeah that means they've had sex which is you know anyway yeah Although instead of doing the pan to the ocean, we have the pan to the men's room at the truck stop. (laughs) Yeah, there is. I mean, there is in something like in classical Hollywood sort of film grammar. There's the idea of an eyeline match. 
which is a shot reverse shot cut from usually from a man to a woman, man on the left side of the screen looking right so that his eyes uh, kind of pew, 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 like laser beam to the right and then cut to a close-up of a woman on the other side looking left. And if you imagine the kind of the energy, the pew, pew, pew of the laser beam um, running left to right in the direction of English language reading, right uh, across the screen, you get a uh, you get a, a sort of flow of energy from a kind of from a kind of originator or sort of penetrator to a penetratee. You get a kind of like phallic relationship of that. You, you know, you see it in that classic Hollywood stuff all the time. And once once you're sort of made aware of it, you can't unsee it. It it happens all the time. And so that that like there is this 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 is a, a move with with some depth of history. History, you know, in terms of filmmaking practice with the kind of the, the eyeline match and a sort of quasi-sexual energy that kind of flows from from eye to eye. But you can't, I mean, all you get uh, in terms of carnality, right? And, and, and carnality is exactly the word for it, right? With, with uh, Freddie Mercury sort of strutting, stomping. I mean, Mick Jagger had nothing on him, right? Like stomping, posing, uh you know throwing that mic stand around um shirtless on stage right his his bare chest sort of glistening with with sweat sort of throwing his body into the pro into the performance you know and and that that just sort of energy it's all it's almost the the it's almost not a a form of homoeroticism that we have um a contemporary language for it's almost more like statues of greek athletes right posed their you know their legs angled as though about to pounce you know their their rippling muscles and stuff like that um conveying not a kind of static sexiness the sexiness of a photograph or or you know something like that but this sort of kinetic uh potential energy like about to about to to pounce like a like like the undomesticated version of the cats that populate uh freddie's london london home and so you can't uh you can't <laughs> long story short you can't do that in pg-13 yeah so <laughs> to, to, to tie this together there's a couple of lines that stand out for me as pulling what you're talking about and what Mark's talking about together. That line you said, you're a legend, right? You're a legend, Ari. You're a wizard. You're a wizard, Freddie Mercury, right? <laughs> you're a wizard, Freddie. Uh, when he, he says that to him right after he hears that he has AIDS, right? Which, of course, as we know, is, is a conversation that certainly did not happen at, in real life at the time that it happens in the movie, if not in the manner. But he says, you're a legend. And it's interesting to consider that... The, that Freddy's dying of AIDS is part of what contributes to the fact that this movie is a, not a not a adaptation of Freddie Mercury's award winning 2005 autobiography Killer Queen, but is in fact the legend of Freddie Mercury. Right, the sort of mythology that is associated with trying to explain somebody like Freddie Mercury. Yeah, you know what? It's yeah. almost like it, you have to understand that you have to understand that line by mentally inserting the word now in front of it. Yes. 
Yeah, now you're a, oh, so you're going to be dead when this movie is over. That means that you're a legend. <laughs> right. And there's that other there's that other line, which is when when Mary, his a longstanding fiance, ex-fiance, fruit fly of sorts, uh, which is that's a whole other complex relationship, um, says that she has the dream where he has no voice and he can't speak. And it's like to me hearing that I'm thinking, oh, that's about how Freddie Mercury is going to be dead by the time they make the movie about his life. Right? So he won't be able to tell the truth about what it was really like. And we're going to be left with sort of fragments and misrememberings and things that are really badly incorrect. But also this sort of impenetrable wall between everybody's feelings and thoughts about Freddie Mercury and Freddie Mercury and sort of the imagining of what we think Freddie Mercury's perspective on himself might be. Versus the sort of actual subjective frame of reference of Freddie Mercury, which is lost and yeah, which we don't have anymore. It, it's almost it's almost a shame that the film didn't have a uh, didn't have a scene where he like breaks a mirror or something and looks at himself reflected in the shards, <laughs> like hundreds of Freddie Mercury's looking looking back at him. I think that the dominant visual motif that expresses something like this is the the mess and detritus strewn about after a party. Uh, of which there are a couple in the film, and the sort of just sort of junk lying everywhere, right? And that that seems to me to be a pretty good allegory for the construction of the movie, right? Where sort of everybody you imagine a lot of a lot of cooks in this kitchen, right? You ma- you imagine yeah. a lot of a lot of people at this party, the but two directors, like I was joking about at the beginning, like, um, but you know, two sort of conscious organizing consciousnesses at least, uh, shaping this film to say nothing about the, the influence, you know, surely, um, uh, surely great, uh, exerted by the, the surviving members of queen, right? That, that, that this is a mess that everyone has kind of thrown stuff down all over the living room and then left the party. And what, what we're left with, uh, what we're left with construction wise is a mess, right? Like, uh, and I suppose it's to its credit, it's credit that there isn't a couple of, there isn't like a single scene where, it's you know the the law and order moment right where it's like well when i was well, the batman moment when i was young i saw my parents gunned down by uh notorious villains and that made me want to become a creature of the night you know um why you know why is this freddie mercury different from all other children of immigrants right like why is he uh why does he have this sort of drive? Why does he have this unique talent? Why does he have this set of instincts and, and tastes and um, sensibilities that sort of that that lead him to this life? Totally unanswered, you know. Mm-hmm. And and also the sort of the the sort of family aspect, the relationship, like the the real story with the band. Um, at least in, insofar as I understand it, is that they all took a break, right? They were all kind of sick of each other. And so they, they went on hiatus. Like he wasn't the only one with a solo project. Uh, and then they, you know, then they came back together and were recording, uh, uh were recording an album in that like 1983 or 84 yeah. year that, uh, you know, that is supposed to be like he decamped to where was it Munich or something, you know, and, and, uh, lived his life among the German leather daddies while, um, you know, while <laughs> Brian May sat, sat twiddling his thumbs back in merry old England, right? Like that, that is, that's, 
that's false and it it doesn't even the sort of theme of like individual genius versus uh, a sort of collaboration or or you know um or the kind of the alchemy of a particular group would be more interesting had the had the facts been observed I wanted to I wanted to sort of have there be a game show answer that went something along the lines of things that could happen in a Grimm's fairy tale and or a biopic of the 1970s. Alex, right? It's like living among the German leather daddies. It's like <laughs> these like creatures of myth that like live in the forest, right? And like <laughs> right, yeah, and, and come out, and grow the their scent. luxurious mustaches, yeah, right, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, and trim them to that like perfectly straight, you know, sort of. The highway patrolman, sort of perfectly straight yeah. uh, line that seems seems impossible to get in in real life without you know, um, I don't know with the, without the attention of a of a highly skilled barber. Um, but yeah, anyway, the 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 faintest whiff of the faintest whiff of cocaine, right? The the faintest whiff of the of the price of fame uh, sequence in a film sends people scurrying back to uh, scurrying back to where they belong. You know, I, I really I really love what you just said. Uh, just talking about that sort of division between the psychodrama that you would expect there to be because this is a movie that like strains to hit all sorts of beats that are in other movies, right? It's like, Oh, we have to have the one where the band breaks up and then the band gets back together. And this is about the band because that's what every other movie about a rock band is about. Right. And, and we have to have the one where there's like the girlfriend who's worried because he's on the road and she doesn't get to talk to him anymore because every movie about a rock band has that. Uh, and it's, and I think, I, I would think of it. To, we already referenced Grimm's fairy tales. It's like they're chopping the toes off of Cinderella's stepsister and shoving that foot into the into the glass slipper of of a, of a of a biopic for a rock band. But just I feel like the the real the feature of this movie, if you're going to like it, I think has has something to do with. This I this sort of this divisibility, this sort of barrier that can't be crossed between the artist being the artist and then everybody else looking at the artist and trying to ascertain what's motivating them or what's really going on or that that Freddie Mercury isn't the kind of person who creates the illusion that the interpretation of art and the creation of art happens in a coherent way. Right. Like so somebody who. Uh, I mean, I think I think we could compare this movie in a lot of ways to straight out of Compton, uh, you know, Ice Cube. Uh, well, it says that it gets funky when you have a subject and a predicate, but also Ice Cube uh, writes lyrics that are ostensibly about his own life. Although, of course, if you've seen Straight Out of Compton, you know that they're not actually about his own life because he doesn't have a six four. He doesn't have a car. He rides the bus. Right. But sort of like there's a there's an idea of. Compton that NWA creates in the lyrics of their music that has a correspondence to reality, even though it's kind of a creative act. And if you want to look at where it came from, it's very easy to make the leap of, oh, it just came from their real life, right? Like NWA, discounting any sort of like craft or lyricism or creativity that they employed in the creation of it, it seems like obvious you can make that leap to a clear cause and effect between what kind of upbringing they had and what kind of music they made. Although in the actual creative process, I would suggest that that elision, they're doing you favors by making it easier. And that's maybe not really what it's like. 
And then you have Freddie Mercury here who writes these songs that are impenetrable and also doesn't even he doesn't even write all the songs. He's singing a bunch of these different songs that are written by the different members of the band. And because they're all coming from his mouth, the idea of who he is is kind of a is, is a pastiche of all these sort of different things. I mean, who of you hasn't really thought like, man, why does he like bicycles so much? What's that really about? Right. I love that how the thing about like I love my car. I'm in love with my car. That song that they're talking about from that album that's actually written by the drummer. And it's like, well, you hear that and you assume that it's Freddie Mercury talking about penises, right? But in fact, it was written by the drummer about his car. Yep. <laughs> and, and so like you don't really know. You don't even you don't even have that sort of when you're talking about Queen. I don't think you even really have that sort of elision to make that leap that's really easy to make between what they're singing about and then what their sort of origin is, what their yeah. sort of raison d'etre, whatever it is, whatever that French term is, you know, the sort of occasion for their making their music is. Uh, it's not there. And the movie doesn't have it to lean on. And so the movie gets lost. Uh, but maybe that's a feature or, you know, maybe that's one of the things that's redeeming about the movie or maybe it's not. I don't know, Mark, you didn't like the movie. What do you think? <laughs> well, okay, so just keeping on this uh, on this theme we're talking about here. Um, Mama, ooh, I don't want to die. I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. Um, the movie is trying to shoehorn all this together. Yes. Um, in, in that way, in the scene, final scene at Wembley. Um, because Freddie Mercury in the chronology of this, he's already dying of AIDS yes. at this point. Yes. And, and my brain was like, Oh yeah. Ooh. Oh, he doesn't want to yeah. die. But then, but then, and then I'm like, wait a minute, but no, 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 this doesn't really make any sense at all. Oh, the the uh, movie the movie says that Freddie Mercury has powers of prophecy and is able to write songs that are about his own future. Sorry. Go on. Go on. <laughs> like that's kind of what the movie's doing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it, this is true. I did not like the movie, but as you're talking about, particularly, you know, there's like the inscrutability of the lyrics and uh, everything, particularly compared to something more autobiographical, like, you know, straight, uh, uh, straight out of content with NWA or the uh, speaking of prophecy, right? The future Bruce Springsteen biopic, which I'm sure will be made someday and it better not suck. Um, you know, that's going to be more kind of like draw through line from, oh, this person grew up as X and the, the, the music became some variant of X. Clearly not happening with Queen. Um and and yet the movie doesn't seem to fully lean into that, though, right? I mean, what you guys are talking about all the features of the fantastical and non non truthful aspects of it. Um, sure, right? I, I understand where that where that place is coming from, but I, I think we're also in agreement, maybe, right, that this is an incomplete um, or not totally coherent creative project. Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. Oh okay. yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. Like you remember that part in the middle where Mike Myers shows up and makes a Wayne's World joke, <laughs> like at the, <laughs> looking at the camera. <laughs> let's let, let's talk about that a little bit more for people who who haven't who haven't seen the movie. This is yeah. a brilliant. Uh, it's, it's it's an enjoyable metacasting, right? I mean, like you know, it scratches a particular itch and uh, uh, it made my life better for it being in it, right? Or not being in it. Um, so they're going to you know they're, they're they're in conflict with the record company and they don't want Bohemian Rhapsody to be released as a single because it's too long. Um, now, from what I understand, like the, the Mike Myers character is meant to be an amalgam of different uh, uh, people in the studio who were giving them pushback over releasing Bohemian Rhapsody as a single. Um, but anyway, so uh, the Mike Myers character uh, says that he wants uh, uh, I'm in love with my car, uh, the shorter song to be the single, because he says, like, that's the kind of song that teenagers are going to drive around in their cars and bang their heads to. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody is never going to be. 
that kind of song. I don't know if exactly who if he looks at the camera on it, but he he might as well be. Right. So that's what's going on in that scene yeah. there. Like I said, because, I got a laugh out of it. I enjoyed for it. those of you who are Gen Zers in the house, there was a little movie called Wayne's World that came out in the early 90s. <laughs> a live movie uh, where Mike you Myers. Think a bi- you think they're a big demo for us? I got to think that Wayne's World is pretty old at this point. Right. Like and there are people who haven't seen Wayne's World uh, or maybe are not because I don't feel like it's really like. It hasn't found the same sort of nostalgic fan base as like Friends. I know yeah. that a lot of younger kids like Friends, but yeah, I don't. Know note, my, my, my wife, who's the same age as all of us here, uh, had not seen Wayne's World. I had to like show her the that clip from the movie. It's like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, and for us, for for boys, for those of us who are boys of a particular age, when that movie came out. It's it's a touchstone, right? Which is that it's this, this Saturday Night Live movie about Mike Myers and Dana Carvey as public television hosts from Peoria or is it Aurora, Illinois? Right? They have their own public access TV show where they talk about you know rock and roll and babes and uh, and their in their parents' basement. And they have this, these movies. They have these two movies that came out, which are among I think the best Saturday Night Live movies, which is not really setting the bar that high, sadly, in retrospect, because I and when I was a kid, I thought all the Saturday Night Live movies were awesome. But in retrospect, it's like, actually, most of them are not that great uh, in the grand scheme of things. But at any rate, they there's a scene where they drive in the car and they listen to Bohemian Rhapsody. And at the t- place where the guitar solo comes in, they bang their head really vigorously. And for you or for me, we I still do that. Right. Like whenever I'm in the car and Bohemian Rhapsody is on, when it gets to like, right, you bang your head. It's That's obligatory. Yeah, it's obligatory. I even wonder, do you, Mark, do you know when headbanging was found, was created? When when was headbanging, when did it originate? Ooh, uh, I'm like Wikipediaing it right now. Um, that's a good question. Well, I'm going to have uh, yeah, to place it, it around like time of like, le- of like the music of like Led Zeppelin, particular like uh, bra- uh, combination of aggression and speed. Yeah, yeah. That, that Wikipedia agrees with you that the term was coined during the first Led Zeppelin U.S. tour in 1969. Oh. There you go. So like head headbanging had only existed for a year when the events of this movie start. And, and so I don't know whether it's like appropriate or not for this executive to be using the term headbanging in casual conversation like a couple of years later. But maybe it is because, of course, he's pretty hooked into things. I know. Sorry, Matt, I interrupted. you. Oh, yeah. No, what I, what I was going to say, Pete, is uh, that headbanging is violently shaking one's head in time with music, most commonly in the rock, punk, heavy metal music genres. Oh, headbanging excellent. is often used by musicians on stage. Citation needed. <laughs> I think that's original research right yeah, there. <laughs> exactly. Cita- yeah, c- citation needed for this uh, for this film for sure. And it's called it's it's uh, raison d'etre, right? Is how you say it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. Just think: Thank are we are we, lo- are we lower in debt? No, we're raising debt. <laughs> <laughs> so so we we're sort of getting caught up in. But the point is that. There are parts of this movie that are being in which you get a sort of uh, surrealist perspective of Freddie Mercury's experience of his own life, you know, as it as if it's shot sort of from the inside. And then there are parts of the movie that you watch from the perspective of other people who are looking at Freddie Mercury and Freddie Mercury's behavior and motivations become inscrutable. I'm particularly thinking about the scene where Freddie Mercury goes on the radio and to to pitch Bohemian Rhapsody to the public, and his fiance looks on. Uh, did they even get married? I don't know. No, the, the I don't movie, believe they did. No. Yeah, but she has she has that ring, and she's looking at him act super gay with the super gay radio host. And there's this 
question of do I even know who this guy is, which is interesting because a lot of the movie is supposedly from his perspective. It's sort of like if he were really the point of view character, there would not be this whole sort of separate part of his life that we're unaware of as we're watching the movie. But the movie kind of slips in and out of him being the point of view character because, of course, he's been long dead and had no opportunity to weigh in. But also just because the reality, the sort of base reality and the sort of terms of the movie shift fluidly from like part of the movie to part of the movie, which could be a product of its many collaborations and iterations, but also, and also just the difficulty of making it. Or at the end of the day, you could just sort of see it as like whatever's been put together. This is one of its qualities uh, that it has this mystery to it where it's, you don't really know whose reality you're really seeing, whose interpretation of events is the one that you're actually watching. Yeah. The one, in the, which, the yeah. one in the radio station is, is a good one to point out because a couple things happen in that, that are sort of unlike other things in the movie. One is that suddenly, suddenly the, the character, there's just this ground shift. I mean, it's, I think you described it as we were like preparing for this and, and chatting about it is like a shift in the base reality of, of the movie because the character, what we think we know about the character uh, completely shifts and the point of view shifts. And then there's this sort of, like alienating film technique thing in which the the like the iconic um uh, music video for Bohemian Rhapsody like is project kind of rear projected onto a screen at the back of the uh, oh, yeah. at the yeah. back of the studio, right? Like, and, and so it's this, it's this weird kind of focus shifting technique where, you know, it, it, you, it's very theatrical where like light goes up on the thing that's important and light goes down on the things that are unimportant. And so, uh, light goes up on, the radio interview light goes down on the people watching the radio interview who are so kind of confounded by the thing that they're seeing. And then there's this kind of other reality, this, you know what I mean? This kind of like theatrical, you know, uh, presentational type of reality of the, the, uh, song, the, the music video coming up behind, behind the action of the film in a way that is not realistic at all. And kind of is this, this sort of, this sort of shift anyway. And so like we hadn't seen, um, Freddie acting that, uh, acting that gay before, you know, and being like being sort of flirtatious or being swishy or being like, you know, he wasn't, uh, he he didn't have any, uh, any, any of that, like zero. And so it goes from, you know, it goes from zero to, I don't know, zero to insert your stereotype here. Uh, in the space of like two cuts, two cuts of the film. And like, given that then following on from that, the, the truck stop scene is after that, isn't it? So like, uh, what, why is he so conflicted at that point when presumably he's embraced this, this part of himself and sort of dealing with, um, like dealing with this stuff and the, the sexuality, right? Like, as a as an aspect of his personality or as a drive or as a, a desire right or as pleasure or something like that is not at all um where this film you know where is not a skill that this this film has it's not an arrow in its quiver but dealing with it as a sort of moral lapse that needs to be punished um dealing with you know dealing with it as like a cause of disease right or a cause of uh um a cause of of a pun you know a, a sort of 
punishment from on high, right? Uh, is is where it lives. Though, of course, you know, playing to a playing to a woke uh, woke millennial audience is going to come out and see a movie about Freddie Mercury. Uh, that is that is very very submerged. You kind of have to be paying attention to to realize that all all that stuff is is uh, to to realize the kind of hidden moralism of the of the film. Well, let's, let's okay. So let's let's keep working on this uh, angle here, right? Because uh, speaking of the woke moralism of the modern age, right? There's uh, this exchange earlier in the movie where the fiance says, "You can't help it. You were born this way." Right, like so, Lady Gaga, I guess, exists in this universe, but not, not Highlander. Lady, um, like, Lady, like... <laughs> Radio Lady Gaga, Radio Lady Gaga. There you go. Um, but uh, tell us, tell me more about then, like, in, in spite of that, uh, that idea being put out in the movie, there is still this subtle moralism going on um, where he does a bad thing and, and gets punished for it. Yeah, I mean, isn't that I, the press the press conference scene is the the key one in that for me? Where the stuff about where the kind of the gay slurs and the stuff about sexuality and the stuff about um, his uh, many lovers and whether love is a roulette wheel has to do with contracting AIDS um, and the way that that is sort of edited into a horrific phantasmagoria, which is supposed to reflect his own um, drug-fueled perception, right? So the the sort of the increase in promiscuity, right, is not uh, is not tied to uh, the increase in promiscuity is tied to his sort of descent into selfishness, um, being conceited, and all those things that he confesses to to the other, uh, to his bandmates when he is do it when he is breaking up with them, right, and going going his own way. Uh, he talks about how they all have families, and even Mary, you know, ends up with the family in Munich. She uh, reveals that she's pregnant, right, and and like he ends, he is supposed to end up with Jim in a sort of in a sort of happy, stable relationship, uh, raising cats together, right? And that that like that that is that that is where he's he's supposed to be. That is the sort of happy, uh, that is the sort of happy thing. And though though the the movie I think would be loath to actually put put it in these terms, the sort of lionizing of. Um, of the sort of domestic life of the the other characters and the sort of connection of uh, the sort of the connection of his decline in health with um, the, with uh, the rise of his sort of personal selfishness and his you know dedication to himself right like adds up to a, a pretty harsh reading of him as as in some sense deserving what he gets. It is interesting. Go ahead. You're saying it might be uninten- unintentional, though. I mean, earlier we said that you know the the, the default of making and move, analytical move is to assume everything is intentional. But it sounds like this maybe not so much. That particular I, reading no, I I don't think so, or I don't think it's it's intended to come across that way, uh-huh. right? Okay. I I think I think it's intended to in in sort of quote unquote normalizing. Uh, being gay, right, and sort of normalizing homosexuality in a way that is going to be palatable to the audiences of this movie, it ends up engaging a kind of respectability politics that uh, 
that kind of scold that that are super judgy about um, the super judgy about the promiscuous lifestyle. Yeah, it's because it aligns the same critics who say that he shouldn't be having affairs with men with the critics who ask him in public why he's afraid to come out of the closet publicly. Right. Which which is a weird sort of alignment. <laughs> this idea that that the the state of righteous rightness for him isn't a state of necessarily uh, it's it's both the state of like stop sleeping or stop stop sort of sneaking around and being gay. It's basically sh- shifting the goalposts for what his environment would punish him for doing or reward him for doing in his life, in his lifetime. Right. It, it, it ignore it. It's sort of the movie kind of shifts its Overton window pretty severely because at the beginning, all the talk about men having sex with men is communicated through glances and nonverbal communication in, in a sort of uh, recreation of the time period wherein people would not be talking about these things openly for fear of retribution of various sorts from their surroundings. Right. Uh, and then by the end of the movie, we're in the situation where it is right and good for you to be out and honest. And not only that, but the media wants you to be do this and that the public will not punish you for it, which is like a huge change, which I don't think is I don't think that that was even have been appropriate to do in even like 2002. Right. Like you have to get pretty far along before people would deal with like no consequences. And the reporter just being like, why would you not do it? What was the problem? Um, and But I will take one thing one step further than what you said, Matt. Which is that you said that that because I think it's even a little bit weirder and darker than what you're saying, I think, although I would also say that that it's not so much that everything is intentional, but more that uh, the happy accidents are more interesting than what's intended <laughs> in this movie, I think. And in a lot of movies, the sort of the, and that is part of the sort of inscrutability of the transference from the creator to the created. Uh, but but the notion uh, that. That Freddie Mercury is supposed to end up racing cats with Jim. And the movie, I don't think that's true because we're telling the legend of Freddie Mercury. And we all know how the legend of Freddie Mercury ends. And there are certain things about Freddie Mercury's life that we know. And and I think when I say we know, I'm making an assumption that other people who have sort of a medium familiarity with Freddie Mercury, like me, know a certain couple of things about his life. Like we read something about him once and we we know a certain number of things. And as long as the movie hits those beats, then we're going to be pretty comfortable that it's telling the story of Freddie Mercury, even if it's like vastly departing at various points. And one of them is what his relationship with Jim ends up being, which is not raising cats, Uh right? Like the relationship with Jim that is so beautiful that it is the thing that is sort of hanging over the entire movie is that we know that Jim is the man who will be by Freddie Mercury's side when he dies of AIDS, And that we know that in the waning years of Freddie Mercury's life, he will be with his trusted life, you know, his trusted partner who will protect him from the media and they will be at home together. And that this will be sort of where he lands. This is sort of where his life ends is it ends with Jim. Right. And 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 I mean, I I feel like I went into the movie knowing this, that, oh, he starts with a woman. I thought he ended his life with this like really close life partner that that like took care of him while he was dying of AIDS. There is a very strong in a way rhetoric to that to that slide and that title. Right. That's like Freddie. Freddie and Jim lived together uh, happily until until he died in 1991. You know, right. There's like in a way they had the domestic. They achieved domestic (laughs) bliss. If you consider domestic 
pointless to be dying of AIDS. Right. Then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gradually. Yeah. Which, you know, had no, no treatment then. And, you know, at that point was the kind of the early days of even understanding what it was, understanding the difference between HIV and AIDS, the, the very early days of even tests that could defect, detect how far, uh, the disease had progressed and things like this. It was a, you know, it was a, uh, it was a scary time and also like a politically important time because it sort of decimated uh it decimated communities and and it decimated gay communities and in urban centers and and well, i guess it would have to be in urban centers because you need an urban center in order to have uh in order to have communities right like uh, out, out out in the country where the people are few and far between there just aren't enough people to form you know legit communities but like that that like uh that 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 again Against the backdrop of that kind of painting it as though like, well, yes, he, he sort of achieves he sort of achieves domestic bliss. He sort of comes back to the home. He sort of recreates in his own way the home that he was so desperate to escape as a teenager uh, or, you know, a young adult um, running out to rock shows when he uh, should have been at home with his, his parents. I feel like I mean, I don't know it. This is this is where talking about the movie starts getting like really emotional for me. Mm. Uh, I mean, I mean, first of all, it, it's really sad. AIDS is really sad. Can, I know this is I don't want to be in, I'm definitely not trying to be insensitive. I'm actually trying to be sensitive at this point. But but um, it, it seems like now that we have all these treatments and everything, it's pretty easy to forget the kind of pressing reality of just how desperately sad AIDS it was and, and sort of the, the event of AIDS you know, is in considering it in totem around the world, right? And particularly, and of course, the sort of surge in it that happened, uh, you know, in the in the United States, um, and the tens of thousands of people just dying in just in droves, right, from this thing that's just poorly understood, and and this idea that kind of like that that this guy, the Freddie Mercury, is this remarkable tragic figure because he was so alive when he was alive. And, and AIDS took him, right? And it's just so hard to wrestle with the story of Freddie Mercury without really confronting what this sort of whole AIDS thing did and the full scope of it. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just that, like, there are other sorts of stories about AIDS where the tone of it is kind of modulated to the fact that you're talking about an epidemic that killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and around the world kills, what, like millions of people, Right. Um, it is it, it's, it's this horrible, horrible epidemic. Uh, you know, you watch something like Angels in America or And the Band Played On, and the tone is kind of protects you a little bit because it's really sad, right? And it's and, and there's this idea of like we're talking about something that's very serious, so put on your serious pants. And like in your serious pants, in the pocket is a little pocket watch you can kind of grip in your moments of despair that gives you a sort of stiff upper lip about kind of facing a cruel reality of history. But to have the story of Queen. Right, which includes the pop single to the movie The Highlander, end with the party boy dying of AIDS, and and it's just it's entire. I, I want to say it's intolerable, right? As in, not in the sense that I don't want to watch it, but in the sense that I literally can't handle it, and I don't think the movie could really handle it either. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the end, okay? Yeah. Right, the um, uh, charitably say awkward transition from this raucous rendition of We Are the Champions. At, at the aforementioned Wembley concert to the title card that says basically Freddie Mercury died of AIDS. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like that, that 
that was jarring. Yeah. I, is that fair to say? Yeah, but it's Greek, right? Like it's it's uh, in the sense of of Homeric, right? It's it's like the Iliad, the the sort of at the moment, you know, the 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 young Greek warrior achieves uh, his apotheosis, like at the moment that he dies, you know, at the moment that his he sort of makes his sacrifice in war, right, is is when he is most beautiful and when he is most um, true and most uh, uh, heroic, and then he's dead, <laughs> right? And his his name sort of lives on in song, right, in the song of the of the bards and and things like this, and so there is this sort of. Um, you know, there is this sort of juxtaposition of, of triumph. And, and I think actually what it, what it's meant to do is actually allied the really, the really sad parts, right? Like allied the, um, you know the the uh, uh, decline of his body, you know of yeah, of his right. energy, the the sort of be, long stretches of being bedridden, being unable to like walk or or record music, like stuff that you know at the end where they were like the other like near the very end of his life, where the other members of Queen were like waiting in the studio for Freddie to have like one good hour of energy to come in and record some stuff, some of which which was released, you know. Uh, years after he died, like four or five years after he died, um, those last, those last sort of sessions. And like, it, it, it gets you that it leapfrogs, you know, it, it leapfrogs completely, it leapfrogs completely over that. And, and, um, sorry, I have, I have more to say about that, but Mark, I don't want to, I don't want to, no, I just, I just, I just want to say it's a notable contrast again to straight out of Compton where, <laughs> the, yeah. the the leader leader of that group dies of AIDS, and they show that. And uh, if I remember serves correctly, like you know, they, he's bedridden, he's just like horribly yeah. sick, and you put on just, your like, serious pants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You put uh-huh. on your Meryl Streep pants when you're watching Eazy-E die of AIDS. They leave the Bone Thugs and Harmony tape on the desk, right, like on a little table in the in the hospital room, so he can listen to the Crossroads, the song that will be played after his death to commemorate him, right? Like it's in it, and so it, so straight up, Compton creates this poetry that. That adds this structure and this sensibility to the death of Eze from AIDS, which is interesting because it's almost like, in terms of like, gosh, that's that's really rough to think like of the public identities of Eze versus Freddie Mercury. Should we be okay with how much easier it is to talk about Eze dying of AIDS because he had like an appropriate tribute or what or why? Right? Because we, it, why is it so hard to talk about Freddie Mercury dying of AIDS and Eze dying of AIDS can be kind of narrativized so much more straightforwardly? Uh, is it just that the movie is kind of confused and wants to be triumphant? By the way, I think that the global total for AIDS death is now standing at around 35 million people. So, you know, less than a million of those in the United States. But just, you know, the human cost of this thing is just so huge. Right. And this it's, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to get sidetracked on that either. But it's like the, I didn't put it in the movie. Right? Like, uh, but and they sort of half put yeah, it. In they, the movie. They, yeah. Well, no, I, yeah, they didn't. They didn't put it in the movie. Right. I think this sort of I think this sort of sadness, the kind of devastation that you're talking about, the whole the idea of sort of looking, looking around um, at important people in certain communities and seeing them decimated is is absent from the movie and is kind of notable for its absence. But I think it creates this void where the emotion kind of has to run 
rush in afterwards uh, because it's not really addressed satisfactorily artistically. The other aspect of that that I think is not is not dealt with is terror. Right. And the the in the 80s, the idea that this was not understood and no one knew, you know, what what it was. And it research was not being funded. And the whole, you know, there there are a lot of good sources of information about. Uh, yeah, how about that part of the movie where they said everybody's researching AIDS now? Yeah. Right. Like, right, right. yeah, that happened. Yeah. In that order. Right. Oh, oh right. So, OK. So, so instead of the terror and instead of the like the horrible bedridden uh, Freddie Mercury scenes, we get the one where, you know, he, he's diagnosed and he's walking out of the clinic. And uh, with another patient who is not in great shape, but not like completely falling apart. Recognizes oh, no, he, is. Freddie he has Mercury. the boobos. He has the sores, right? Yeah. So he has full on AIDS. He has full blown AIDS. He's in bad shape. OK. All right. But I guess like, you know, well, he's at least like sitting up on his own and not uh, like doubled over in, in a bed or, or you know, uh, doubled over on the bench or sitting in a bed. Right. right, he's, right. he's with it. What I'm saying is that he's with it enough to give to recognize Freddie Mercury and to give him that little shout out. Right. The, the call out. The AO kind yep. of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we get that instead of all the sort of the full blown horror of it. Again, again, like you know, those are clearly intentional artistic choices here. Um, and you know, that the movie uh, again is like you know on balance meant to be more about like just like the the, the power and the the what's the exact word I'm looking for? Just the bombast. That's what I'm looking for. The bombast. The bombast of Queen's music, and that overrode. You know, like the AIDS bed scenes for better and for worse. Let, let me let me re-ask a, a question that I po- sort of threw in as a point earlier on. How much of this movie is the inference that the name of the song Bohemian Rhapsody is telling the story of Freddie Mercury's life as a retelling of the Puccini opera La Boheme? <laughs> right, like that's sort of my question, question mark. Right, is, is, is that a? <laughs> that seems to be. To, I'll, I'll put it as a statement. That seems to me to be sort of what the movie is trying to do, which is it's like, oh, there's this song Bohemian Rhapsody, and then there's this this Puccini opera called La Boheme, which is the basis for the movie Rent, which is about people dying of AIDS, and Freddie Mercury also died of AIDS. So, like, isn't the life of Freddie Mercury sort of like the the opera La Boheme and the musical Rent? Like, it shouldn't in that way? Is it in Freddie Mercury write the Bohemian Rhapsody as a summary of his own life prophetically from earlier in his life because he knew that he was going to die like a character in Rent or like a character well, in Pete, a I, I, uh, I could um, I could answer your question, but uh, yeah. I think we're not going to say we're not going to say we're not going to say <laughs> the answer to your question. <laughs> I, th- I think it's just that it goes back to the idea that I think this movie is more comfortable with finding story tropes that fit the events that it wants to tell than it is with actually trying to look at the events that happened and ascertain from them a story. It is like looking for other stories. I'm saying that the life of Queen or the life of Queen in large and the life of Freddie Mercury in particular is one of but not the only text that this movie is drawing its plot from. Right. That there are other including Downton Abbey, as we have, uh, you know, Branson, the leather, the leather king uh, is, is, in, is in the saddle for this. <laughs> the, and, and it's also I, I feel like a little bit we're we're ill-equipped to kind of really go go into this. And I I I, I have a, a passing familiarity with some filmmaking for 
from the era, you know, and from the like the New York gay community because I had teachers who were interested in that that period. And so, like, there there are a couple of uh, films and directors. One is the the movie Longtime Companion from 1989, written by Craig Lucas. Another is uh, Edward the Second by Derek Jarman, um, you know, the director, uh, where I think certain certain um, certain parts of that that film or the film um uh or or jarman's later film blue uh deal deal in kind of a first-hand um deal kind of in a first-hand way with some of the issues that that we're talking about uh rent actually is not a, a bad text to look at though it though it is super commercialized it actually comes out of it actually comes out of the that community yeah in that's true that's true in new york uh as much you know as much as as much as you and i love to to uh to make i know um but let's let's turn to the least important part of this film which is the music of queen (laughs) (laughs) uh mark i i I feel like you've been sitting on a lot of stuff that you want to say for the uh for this um uh, about this in the movie, so let's. I just want to kind of back off and give you give you space to do your thing here <laughs> musically. Uh, can you talk about uh, Can you talk about anything that interested you? Um, I, I, I use the word bombast, right? I think that's 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 a good place to start. Um, the the music, uh, okay. So the music of Queen is extremely compelling, extremely. Uh, popular, right? People the world over love this music. It is very unique. There are very few things in the rock uh, genre that accomplish what Queen does, right? With its uh, unique the virtuosity combined with the like prog rock um, avant-garde sensibility, um, and then just like the full force hard rock um uh face melting guitar solo thing going on they are uh and, and of course you know and layering on top of all of that freddie mercury's vocals right it, it's just like for someone who loves rock music who loves um theatricality who loves music that is just like really big and out there but also like pushes uh your pleasure centers in terms of harmony and melody there is nothing else out there like queen um, actually, I mentioned Bruce Springsteen before. The Bruce Springsteen actually gets kind of close. Bruce Springsteen is closer to Queen uh, than you, you might think at first. I mean, uh, Springsteen doesn't quite have the hard rock. Is substitute hard rock with uh, with uh, sort of an R and B sensibility, but the bombast uh, and, and 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 virtuosity and theatricality are there in equal parts. So that's my kind of like you know uh, summary statement on on Queen. It's like it's big and it's out there and it's it's very unique and that's why it's so popular. Anyone care to disagree with that? No, I think um, it's interesting the way that the movie characterizes Queen as music by misfits for misfits. Uh, I was particularly uh, uh, reminded when I was in the movie theater, watch this by myself. <laughs> with- <laughs> yeah, I was I was pretty lonely as well. Exactly. And also, like, I'm my beard's a little shaggy right now. And I was sort of thinking of the stereotype of the Internet, you know, basement dweller who loves Queen and like wears fedoras and such, because I think that's because sort of an element of the stereotype. Right. Oh, is it? What? Maybe not. Maybe it's just that people on Reddit seem to really love Queen. Um, But here's the thing. Everybody loves Queen. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. so when I think about Queen, one of the things that I think about 
is that the topics of their songs are more varied than I would have expected. Like the what the songs are about. Uh, I think I think at one point I remember having a conversation with a friend who relayed with me a conversation that she had with her mother, where she asked uh, her mother uh, why I think two of my friends were talking in the backseat of a car. And one of them pointed out so many of the songs on the radio. And this is when we were teenagers. So many of the songs on the radio are about love. Why? Why is it that love is the thing that so many of the songs on the radio are about? And the mom said something effective, like, well, what else is there to sing about? <laughs> right? Like, like this sort of like really haggard kind of drawn way, just like it's the only thing in life that's worth singing about is love. Whereas Queen has a song about bicycle, right? And Queen has a song about a car. And it's got to sing about whatever the heck Killer Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody are about, which is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. kind of nothing and everything at the same time. You know, we will rock you. We're the princes of the universe. I mean, I really liked I hope that that is a faithful part of the movie, though I don't particularly care. I guess this idea that Queen made a deliberate choice to involve the audience in the performance of its songs and, and arranged songs with a part for the audience in mind, uh, which is it, so that it could be performed, you know, in live performance. Uh, which is really interesting from an artistic perspective. But this idea that they were thinking of the audience as a participant, that they were kind of varying what the music expressed, that they were not using the music as a means. I guess I guess it sort of goes maybe this is maybe this is the thing that makes Queen the least comfortable, which is that Queen does not seem to it both embraces and entirely rejects the preface of the lyrical ballads. Right. Like the sort of Wordsworth Coleridge preface. Right. Which is this idea that, like, you know, poetry emerges from an excess of emotion. Right. Because you would think that and that is like the thesis of credo of romantic poetry is that, oh, people have these super strong feelings and the feelings overflow into the poetry that they make. And Queen certainly has this like overflow of feelings. But the music that they make doesn't really seem to like directly correspond to the cause or motive of the feelings, right? Like the music seems to sort of coexist and be fueled by the intensity of feeling, but it doesn't seem to uh, rise from it directly. There seems to be some sort of intermediation between the emotions that you're having and the music that's being played. And maybe that's part of what makes it comfortable for people or fun for people to listen to. I remember thinking while I was watching the movie, yeah, it makes sense that the music that the the guy because the movie portrays Freddie Mercury as somebody who has very little self-awareness and is sort of in this state of kind of denial about himself and always move forward. And he writes mysterious things that not even he understands, although this might also be a product of the movie moving in and out of his point of view willy nilly. But this idea that he writes songs that are deliberately mysterious, not even they're not even deliberately mysterious. He writes songs as they occur to him through inspiration and they end up being mysterious because he doesn't understand himself. And as such, they get sent out into the world and then other people who don't understand themselves connect with something that's been sort of embedded in the music and translated into mystery that, that there's maybe it's something that sort of protects you from the truth of your feelings. Uh, maybe it's like, I don't want to confront what I really feel like. I want to clap. I want to dance. I want to stomp. You know, I want to, I don't stop me now. I'm having a good time. <laughs> this, this, whatever feelings are happening, let's not pause to look directly at them. Let's just go. And that this feeling of, uh, Maybe that's part of what Queen does that other bands don't do, which is that it, it it connects with people's intense feelings and and further intensifies them. Yeah, without without necessarily yeah. narrativizing, without necessarily yes. tying them down to a particular story. 
Yes, yes, yes. Like Bon Jovi would sing a song like that, but it would be like, yeah, it really sucks to not have a job. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, yeah, it does. Right. Johnny, Johnny, you said, Johnny, yeah. And to my point, Springsteen uh, is is more aligned with Bon Jovi in that way, and like is not uh, aligned with Queen. So I take back a little bit what I what I said earlier in terms of putting the two of them on on the level. Sonically, though, I think there's a lot similar going on, but thematically correct, they're totally opposite. So, so a couple things I want to throw in. One is that in one of the recreated vocals in a long sustained high note, I heard auto tune, and uh, if you auto tune Freddie Mercury, your movie is invalid. <laughs> that's uh that's you know that i think that's a kind of physical law that's a thermodynamics or something um the other thing is that i i the live aid show i thought there were in in the end oh i have so many things i want to say about it but like i th- i think that the way it was shot was was sort of badly misjudged uh rather than sort of bad cgi uh impossible shots like through the legs of the piano bench and and to brian may and like all that you know uh all that kind of theatrics and all of this kind of frenetic motion that created um that created excitement i i i don't know i feel like a the the Lady Gaga performance, Lady Radio Gaga at the end of A Star is Born was a lot more effective for me as a sort of final performance wrapping up kind of thing uh in in a film because it 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 trusted the performer a lot, right? And the the uh uh, this didn't it it put a lot of of theatrics and things like this and a lot of the the best parts of the the live aid show were crowd reactions when you saw people kind of and they got good extras right like or at least got good moments from the extras um and from some of the people, even some of the band members on stage, like looking around, just sort of in awe at uh, at what was, you know, at what was going on. Um, the the way, uh, and but it had nothing to do with the giant shots, you know, uh, coming in like flying in over the the very bad CGI crowd. Um, you know, really more, yeah, dis- really yeah. more distracting than anything, and that I, that actually, I mean, I, I you know, look, it's who am I? I'm I'm nobody, and nobody wants me to replace Brian Singer directing their uh, Freddie Mercury bio- biopic. But like, what would happen if you would just lock the camera off, had a static frame, and let uh, Rami Malik like um, do that incredible, do, be kinetic within that frame? You know, and like clearly, like he—he's the best thing about the movie, right? I mean, I guess the songs of Queen, like the music of Queen, is pretty damn good. But like, uh, in terms of all the participants here, he's—he's he's the best one, I think. Yeah, like that—that that was one hell of a performance, um, and and imbued a lot of a lot of moments uh, in that film that were not that were not that were sort of strung along like Christmas ornaments rather than being, <laughs> um, you know, rather than being sort of connected. Uh, imbued a lot of them with with real humanity, with a sense of discovery, with interest, uh, and and with a sense of a complete person that was not shared by the the script, um, not shared by the script entirely, right? Uh, so so that like that like and sort of in, in, instead of insisting on a narrative, like insisting on a particular way of 
reading and understanding that Live Aid show, if it had kind of let you experience it and then kind of unite your own excitement, your own emotions, your own sort of arousal to that uh, to that performance rather than rather than kind of ra- rather than as it, to use a metaphor that Pete used before kind of jamming it into the jamming it into the glass slipper like one of like one of Cinderella's stepsisters I, I think that the the a lot of the strong emotional response I had to this movie has to do with this technique of kind of jamming in right because by uniting the very good, powerful music to these sort of highly emotionalized sort of moments, like at the level of operatic tragedy, you know, some of the, the bombast in this movie, it's like sucking on emotional bullion cubes, right? And that that like, even if it's unearned, even if it's very sentimental and, uh, and does not stand up as a kind of considered work of art, like the experience of watching it uh the experience of enduring it um like you 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 just have a physiological reaction to that and sort of when i when i walked out of the movie i was like emotionally shaken not from liking identifying with understanding empathizing with uh anything but from as i say kind of sucking on these these emotional emotional bullion cubes uh long story short i think i think the live aid show could have been better done <laughs> i feel like the live aid show is a great place to identify problems with the way the movie shifts in and out of point of view because i i was thinking oh what would make the live age show part first of all it just is executed poorly like the cgi is bad the shots are bad it doesn't look real it looks like it's from like 1996 so if they had just executed it better maybe it would have just been better yeah Uh, but but the other side of it is are we experiencing this show as freddie mercury or are we watching freddie mercury i kind of feel like at this point in the story with freddie mercury dying we should all be watching freddie mercury just sort of let him let him like we're watching him take off right i would you know here's what i would even change history more like have his sister come to the show Right. Like have or have his mom and dad and sister come to the show or his sister come to the show. And maybe you have a sister who's sitting in the crowd. You have his fiance who's like, you know, sitting backstage. And then you have like maybe Jim or the dad is watching on TV. And maybe what you do is you you intercut the uh, the performance from the perspective of different people who are watching it who have different beliefs in who Freddie Mercury is and what he represents. And you shoot that segment of the concert from their perspective. Uh, maybe that would have been a fun way to do it. Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's all sorts of ways you yeah. could have done it. We didn't get that, but we did get the very important Bob Geldof point of view perspective. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was all important. Where the phones really start to ring when Queen <laughs> is on stage so, so, they can the sa- so they can save the Africans. So the movie is about this heroic guy named Bob Geldof. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't show up till the third act. But he's a, it's the real buildup. The, the sequel's all about Bob Geldof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Uh, yeah, that's that's what it was really all leading up to. All right, before we uh, before we take off, let's have a um, let's have a little fun with our last Halloween episode. Uh, an inside joke writes in with the comments: As a person who rarely snacks or succumbs to my sweet tooth, I make it about twenty minutes into this episode before I gorged on all the chocolate I had in my apartment. Thanks, guys. 
uh, that on our uh, episode 539 all about Halloween candy. We're always happy here uh, on the Overthinking You podcast to help you break your diet. Uh, so now, thank you for yeah, listening. Yeah. Uh, next week's episode is all about methamphetamines. <laughs> oh. <laughs> excited oh, for that one. Yeah, we're going. Yeah, we're going up the ladder of stimulants, right? From like uh, Halloween candy to uh, a little cocaine in this movie, and then yeah, to to you know, full on speed to methamphetamines next uh, next week. Uh, that's that's and so the, the detritus will just be spread all over the tables here at Overthinking at Podcast Central, right? Like, and you'll have to piece together the history from the remnants that are left behind. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's call it there. If you would like to comment on this episode um uh we uh we would welcome that we love uh that we're reading some comments on the show now it's a neat uh it's a neat thing to include so if you saw this film and presumably a lot of you did because uh, it made some money this weekend um please uh head head over to overthinking.com find the show notes for this episode you'll find a place to comment there and we look forward to reading those out on a future episode and talking about them thank you again for listening thanks very much to pete and mark for uh, podcasting with me. I, I think you'll agree, guys, that we are the champions, my friends. <laughs> of the world! <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Until then, business on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve.